0: This is the To The Point podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics all in 15 minutes or less. Now, here's our host, Sarah Gillespie.
1: Welcome to our To The Point podcast. I'm Sarah Gillespie. I'm the Compliance Director at Lipskman Pitts, and I have two guests with me today. We're going to talk today again about wellness plans. You may have listened to our prior podcast just on wellness plan regulations, but what we want to talk about today is some of the wellness compliance pitfalls that employers who are very well-meaning, very well-intentioned with their wellness programs can accidentally find themselves in. So I have with me uh, Stacy Barrow, our Arisa the council from Marathis, Barrow, Weatherhead, and Lent. Hi, Stacy. Hey, Sarah. And Betsy Kamler. Betsy is the Director of Wellness and Employee Communications here in our office at Lipscomb and Pitts. Hi, Sarah. So there are a few main pitfalls that we wanted to focus on and stacy has got some great examples and thoughts that um, were just really eye-opening for me when we had talked about this before and I thought it would be a helpful topic to bring to all of you. So the first one is in regards to improper or incomplete disclosure of those reasonable alternative standards. So like Failure to include in all your plan materials referencing benefits does not properly communicate the availability of standards, timing, that kind of thing. So, Betsy, what are some things that um, you can think of some examples that that may lead us to those pitfalls.
0: Yeah. Um, biometric screenings, when they're done by health carriers, that they have um, out, not an outside vendor, but they have the actual health carriers coming in and maybe outsourcing that to another provider. But the carrier is the one bringing that, um, that outsource vendor into the picture. They typically do not typically provide in advance the wellness notice or reasonable alternative disclosures. Should they, or should the employer be you know providing this before the screenings?
2: Yeah, and that's and that's a good question. And just to maybe give a little background before I just uh, jump in and answer the question, you know, one of the reasons is this is kind of such a hot issue. Is this has been part of a prolonged focus by the Department of Labor um, in every group health plan audit that we've been involved in. Um, they are taking a very very close look at wellness programs, um, and we'll you know kind of talk about some of the other issues they raise and. In, in the Few minutes uh, but they are looking to make sure that um, the reasonable alternative standard language is included in all plan materials referencing the benefits and that the employer is not um, so to speak hiding the ball about the reasonable alternatives Um, and so i guess in this situation we're talking about here where there's an outside vendor that's doing the screening may be brought in by the health insurance carrier and you know what if they really don't provide any disclosures uh, prior to taking the biometric screening. Um, I think that it would fall on the employer um, and they, you know, when, when in advertising um, the existence of the biometric screening and letting employees know, I mean, I assume there is some communication where you say, you know, next Tuesday we're going to have the biometric screening and, um, if employees have to fast beforehand, you know, you give them that information, and as part of that, you would disclose that. Um, look, if it's unreasonably difficult or medically inadvisable for you to participate in the biometric screening, then let us know. Okay. And there, there are certainly times when. Someone won't be able to participate in it for a health reason. Um, you know, a couple that I've heard, um, someone might have a, a legitimate fear of needles, and they say, look, when I when I get pricked by a needle, I, I'm going down for the count. I, I faint. I pass out. That really does happen. Um, you could have somebody who's on blood thinners, and it's just, you know, they, they really shouldn't be um, pricked outside of uh, uh, you know like a, do- a real doctor's setting, and so they might um, resist that that on-site biometric screening, um, particularly depending on how you know rigorous it is. If it involves blood draws, and so in those situations, the employer might say, "Okay, well for you, the alternative is go to your physician." have your annual checkup, get your numbers done there and then, you know, let us know when we'll treat you as having uh, fulfilled that element of the wellness program.
1: So it sounds like one of the first things that we want to make sure employers are aware of is that you've got to have the alternatives and that you've got to disclose them openly and completely. So moving on to another topic, um What about when these standards are designed in a non-compliant manner? So, Stacy, I think Betsy had um, heard of an example that she wanted to ask about.
0: Yeah, for instance, when we talk about um, tobacco cessation, we have employers that they may actually require then that they must quit smoking to receive the discount. Is that compliant or non-compliant?
2: Yeah, that that is non-compliant. And frankly, we... See this one all the time. Um, I think it's really an, an education issue for the employer, um, and I know it makes perfect sense to the employer. You know, well, look, the person went through the alternative, but they didn't actually quit. So, you know, why would we give them the reward? And. You have to think of it in terms of a health factor. And the the employee that is a smoker, um, you know, he has the health factor of being addicted to nicotine. Just like someone whose BMI is over the you know, the high end of the, the spectrum, you know, they may have the medical condition of obesity and, and just like it's you know it's very difficult for someone to lose a lot of weight really quickly, it's difficult for an employer or, or for a smoker to stop smoking. And Um, All that is required of the participant to earn the reward is to complete the reasonable alternative, which means take the smoking cessation course, see it through to completion, but They don't actually have to quit smoking to receive the reward. You can, of course, require them next year to go through the reasonable alternative process again. Some employers just waive it after a couple of years because obviously at that point, the employee is pretty dedicated to uh, continuing to smoke. but, you know, just in the same sense that, um, you know, you would, you would have to uh, treat an employee as having fulfilled the terms of the program if, uh, you know, their BMI was over a certain level and they completed the reasonable alternative of getting on a, a diet plan with their doctor, even if they ultimately don't end up losing the weight.
1: So... Stacey, I thought of another question while we're talking about um, things may be issued in a non-compliant manner, and it has to do with when you can earn the reward. So I recall you saying before that a reward needs to be earned for the entire year. So how does that work in a situation where um, you know perhaps the person didn't meet the requirement, and then they're given a time frame to meet it by? At what point can they earn the reward?
2: Sure, so generally speaking, the employees that are going to avail themselves of the reasonable alternative, they, they need to have the opportunity to earn the same reward as an employee who is able to satisfy the standard initially. Um, and so oftentimes an employer um, you know might start the wellness program before the start of the plan year. And they'll tell employees who need the alternative, you know, look, as long as you enroll in the smoking cessation program or schedule the employment with your PCP, whatever the alternative is, as long as you start to go down that road, we'll treat you as having earned the reward for the entire plan year. And, you know, perhaps if you drag your feet a little bit, and you don't sign up for the smoking cessation program in a timely manner, and you end up doing it six or eight months into the plan year, we'll still give you the reward, but we're only going to give it to you prospectively. And that works as long as the employee has a legitimate opportunity to earn the reward for the full year. And... and Practically speaking, a lot of times we see employers, you know, particularly with the smoking cessation program, as soon as the employee agrees and, and indicates that he's going to enroll in that reasonable alternative, they usually just treat him as participating rather than waiting until he finishes it and then having to deal with the retroactive adjustments. Or, you know, they would probably just pay it out going forward, but they might double it up if, you know, the employee. Um, you know, if it took him several months to complete, and it's just kind of easier to, to treat them as participating for the entire plan year. You do have a little flexibility, but you just want to make sure that people who are availing themselves of the reasonable alternative do have that opportunity to get the reward for the full year.
0: Okay, so there's no issue with an employer setting a deadline of when that alternative standard um, should be completed, and then, you know, the retro pay comes into effect once that goal is completed. Is that correct?
2: Um, yeah, as long as it's reasonable, then, uh, then, then, sure. Okay.
1: So moving on to our third pitfall, it's in regards to penalties that would exceed the regulatory maximum. So we talked um, in a prior podcast about the 30 percent and the 50 percent caps for rewards or penalties. Um, and so Stacy, what what can you tell us about um, the 30 and the 50, especially when it comes to smoking and the right way to do the smoking cessation reward?
2: Sure. I mean, given the fact that there are a few different federal laws that can apply to these wellness programs, um, it can be tricky to administer the caps on the rewards, particularly if you're at the upper end of the spectrum and you're, you're kind of right at that 30 percent or 50 percent line. Um, and so we talked before in the prior podcast about um, the the limit on rewards for a smoking cessation program or penalties. It's really the same thing, um, is fifty percent of the total cost of coverage. But if there is testing, then we're back under the ADA rules and we're capped at thirty percent of the cost of of employee only coverage. So um, you know if you're if you have a situation where um, the employer is, is having a very significant reward or penalty um, for those employees who are tobacco users. And it turns out that they're actually doing the testing, then um, you know they might be in a situation where they have overcharged employees and need to, uh, to make some refunds.
1: I don't know about anybody else, but I always thought that sounded backwards. I always (laughs) thought that you should be able to give the greater reward to someone who has proven that they're a non-smoker, but... You know, I understand the way that that works is that it's it's only if there's not any kind of medical inquiry or nicotine test or anything like that, that the greater reward, the 50 percent can apply. So Betsy has some questions that she wanted to ask about um, along this pitfall.
0: Um, So with. Taxation of rewards. Um, we have several um, carriers and vendors out there that offer rewards, and that could be gift cards, could be prizes, um, just whatever that may be. It's it's a tangible item that they're able to take with them. How or should that be taxed through the employer?
2: Sure. Um, and, and I know there are different carriers and, and vendors that might take different positions or they might kind of put it back on the employer to figure out. But general tax code principles hold that um, any reward that's cash or cash equivalent, like a gift card is a readily uh, ascertainable cash value um, is going to be taxable included in the employee's W-2 income, whether that is provided by the carrier or provided by the employer. Um, since these do involve complex uh, uh, areas of tax law. Um, if there are questions, employers really should consult with counsel so we can take a very close look at the um, at the program. But that's that's the general rule: is anytime there's cash or cash equivalent, um, it's going to be includable in income. And employers can you know, maybe give an additional gross-up payment to cover the taxes if they want. But um, you know, generally speaking, there's no exclusion for cash or cash equivalents.
1: So you're saying that an employer who has a wellness program, again, we've talked about having forethought when you're putting these programs in place, they need to be taking account of or working with their vendor to keep account of whoever is earning these incentives. I suppose it would be more like the gift card type things. They'd probably know if cash was given.
2: Yeah, um, you should coordinate with the vendor. Oftentimes the vendor, they might not even say it up front, but they'll, they'll tell you at the end of the year, sure, well, we'll give you a list of the employees who earn the rewards <clears throat> in case you, the employer, feel that it's taxable. And, you know, the vendors and carriers are always very reluctant, as they should be, to give out tax advice. Uh, they, they just say, you know, we'll give you the, the information and then you can do with it what you will.
1: Something else that we were thinking about in regards to taxation was how that is married into the 30% or 50% rule. So if you have an employer who's working with a premium incentive, and so they are making their 30 or 50% calculations by just looking straight at premium, do they need to leave wiggle room for these rewards to also be counted into that percentage?
2: They do under the ABA rules. When, when the ABA is calculating their thirty percent limit, they are looking at both the financial and the in-kind incentives, like the koozies and uh, uh, Fitbits and uh, jumper cables. You know, whatever they're giving out nowadays as rewards, um, that would all be uh, that would all uh, uh, be included in that thirty percent limit.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, so then the last pitfall or really, I don't know if I'd call it a pitfall. I, I just, it was a surprising comment that I heard from you, um, recently was in regards to the DOL's expectation of success for wellness programs and the, um, amount of participants that they expect to be receiving the rewards. So can you tell the audience what you were explaining in regards to that comment?
2: Sure. Um, over the years, as the, um, these regulations have been uh, amended and, and they've developed uh, in accordance with the ACA, the Department of Labor from, from time to time will adjust and reword their uh, model language for the reasonable alternatives. And the, the DOL's position really is that um, they feel that most employees or most, most plan participants should be earning the wellness reward. Um, you know, they, they feel that um, most employees if presented with the wellness program and, and if the reasonable alternative is adequately disclosed, that they should be availing themselves of it. And so one of the things I recommend is, you know, look, if you have really poor participation in the wellness program and not 20% of your people are getting a reward, you might want to look at how you're communicating things because if it turns out that you're really not disclosing the reasonable alternative in the way the the DOL through its regulations expects, then upon audit, they could come in and, and try to take the position that – well, you know, the other eighty percent of participants, you know, had they really been adequately apprised of their rights, um, they would have participated. So you need to pay them out. And again, I mean, this is an issue that pops up on every audit. They're looking very closely at this. And I think part of the the push is that you know they can look really good in the eyes of participants um, if they can make the employer uh, cut checks to uh, a large swath of the employees who. Um, didn't end up, um, you know, uh, actually participating in wellness and earning the reduced rate. So uh, I think it's just kind of. Uh will we'll head off some, some difficulty in the future um, if the, the employer can maybe even show that look we were aware of this and you know we, we even sent out the notice twice and you know we bolded it and you know you just show that you've taken actions to make sure that everybody's aware of it you can't force them into doing it um, and there'll certainly be some companies that just have very very low participation and, and that's okay but you just want to make sure that um, you know you're not hiding the with those reasonable alternative uh, notices or disclosures.
1: Thanks, Stacy and Betsy. I think this was a really important conversation. I think that a lot of employers, like I said in the beginning, go into um, the creation of a wellness program thinking, you know, this is a, a well um, well meaning approach to try to create a health culture at our workplace. And there's just so much more to it. Uh, we would love to help if you have any questions or concerns. If anything we've talked about today was surprising to you, we at Lipscomb and Pitts would be happy to help you with that. You can contact me. Um, at sarahg, S-A-R-A-H-G, at lpinsurance.com, and I can get your questions to the appropriate person, Betsy or Stacy or anybody. We thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and we hope that you listen to other compliance topics that we have out there. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.